Hello, my name is John Brink and we are podcasting from the capital of Northern BC, Prince George, and our session today is BC's Forest Industry and Transition. And it, it is an interesting setting today because I have two guests that are experts in the field and are, uh, you know, from BC and have been in the forest industry for a long, long time. One of our guests is Jim Javan. He's been in the forest industry forever, virtually, at least since 1970, late 70s. 45 years. 45 years. <laughs> and, and Jim is a registered professional forester, spent half of his career in Prince George, worked with mm -hmm. Industrial Forest Service, then went off private, became a bank, and did all kinds of other things. Also, he has his Master's of Business Administration uh, from uh, MBA from UBC. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks. And then we have Rob Schutz, and Schultz has been in Prince George for 30, 33 years. 33 years. Yeah, yeah. Is the CEO of Industrial Forest Service and uh, has, is an expert in all the, virtually all areas of the forest industry. And both of you have worked extensively on all kinds of projects around the industry and, and particularly with a focus on forest and, and all the things relating to it. So yeah. welcome to the show. Thanks, yeah. John. Thanks, John. So, uh, you know, the, so many things are happening right now at an industry in transition. And I think uh, uh, last week I talked to one, one of our guests, uh, in fact, uh, and I think it was you, Jim, that said, yeah, and I call it the industry in transition. You said the industry has always been in transition, mm -hmm. and that's so much so. Yeah. And, and, and some of the things that are happening right now, especially with the government taking an initiative and saying wanting to change the industry and by means of the document, the intentions paper, and its focus on uh, First Nations getting more of the timber and, and sharing in the revenue, as well as uh, adding more value to the resources, adding more social and economic value. And obviously the uh, annual allowable cut has been in decline and is now probably around the 35 to 40 million cubic yep. meters annually, which has resulted in, in reduction of sawmills, too much capacity. We've lost about 35 sawmills. And, and, and so it is a question to the public in general that are watching this show and, and uh, is, is what's happening to the industry? Where does it go from here? Will it be more reductions in sawmill? How about, uh, you know, uh, the pulp mills? How about pellet manufacturing? How about these communities that, uh, you know, have lost that capacity? So, uh, you know, give me some ideas about that. Well, I may I'll start off here. Okay. Yeah, so John, since the intentions paper came out, the government's done uh, a number of steps towards increasing uh, availability of fiber for First Nations. You know, even in Prince George, the Glately Tanay was awarded a large uh, First Nations woodland license, one of the largest in the in the province. Um, you know, and they're going down the path of negotiating with uh, with bands throughout the province on what's an equitable amount of volume that should be allocated to them. Maybe, maybe as much as twenty percent. Well, eventually, yeah. But it's it's uh, it's because there's a lot of overlaps between the different bands sure. on on their traditional territories. You know, how do you adjudicate that? So <clears throat> all of that is still in the works, and we have a little bit of exposure to assisting government in in. in uh, adjudicating that um, just now, on, on a, on a now fiber you mentioned, perspective. Just for our guests to understand it, you mentioned TSA. What is a TSA? So the, the, the province is broken up primarily the largest things, you know, from forest management units. A timber, TSA is a timber supply area. Um, and those are the, like I said, is the largest kind of geographic area. So the Prince George TSA is what about. Uh, uh, six million hectares total area, um, of which probably only uh, uh, what three three million is uh, uh, is timber harvesting land base, um, and you know in other areas you know Fort Nelson uh, that 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 timber supply area is probably about six million as well. Not you know so six, the so the McKenzie. whole uh, Mackenzie uh, probably about four million. I'm kind yeah. of winging yeah, it yeah. here, but. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so effectively, the province is broken up into forest management units. You know, right. tree farms are another one. 
um, which are typically a little bit smaller. And then and now they're awarding, you know, smaller areas. First Nations woodland licenses might be anywhere from, um, you know, 10 to, to 20,000 hectares, that, that kind of idea. So what is a woodlot license? Uh, typically about two, 3,000 hectares. But is that a special form of tenure or what? what? Tenure is, is where people have large volumes of timber available forever and ever and yeah, the the a woodlot is yeah it's a small area. Usually, it's a farmer or a, you know or potentially a for, forester or someone who just has an interest in forest management, and they've they've acquired the the tenure rights to that small area. They they you know typically harvest it for or or manage it for for fiber supply. That's an area based tenure right. in a small form, right? Yeah. So the more the better they. And manage that part, the more yield they likely will get and they benefit from it. That's right? correct, yeah. yeah. And, but the point about all those units you're talking about, whether it's a timber supply area, a tree farm license, a woodlot, a community forest, they're all individual units that are managed um, uh, in order to produce you know, fiber on a sustainable basis. Right. That, that's what's important to understand. Underline they're unique one. units. The wood tends to be uh, uh, can, uh, harvested and consumed within those units, and then the the, the uh, responsibility of the provincial chief forester for for the TSAs, the company uh, uh, chief foresters for the tree farm license, the owners for the woodlot, they all have to regularly look at you know forest growth, how much they're harvesting to ensure that they have a sustainable supply. That's always the underlying. Um, objective of each one of these units and then collectively they cover the entire forested land base of British Columbia which is about 55 million hectares of right. which about 60 percent of it is you know, covered by one of these units that's managed on behalf of the forest industry. Right so that's yeah. kind of the structure. That's the yeah. structure of how we how, how do we get that public resource into the hands of people to manage it and then eventually harvest it and make it available to the industry. Right. And 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 uh, so, and the industry is then mainly considered to be the primary manufacturers that are tenured companies, or uh, not necessarily. But the majority, actually, the majority of the sawmills who utilize the, the logs uh, are you know have some tenure to support the facility. Historically, it might have been 70 or 80 even percent of their log supply came from their own tenures. Right. Now, a lot of these mills, they you know have security of maybe 30 to 40 percent yeah. of their tenure. That's a good number. Yeah, um, that makes it difficult, yeah. right? Because that means they've then... lost security. Yeah, but the yeah. volume might still be there. Now yeah. they have to rely on BC timber sales. Or, yeah, but that or... becomes more competitive yeah. then. Prices yeah. go up. Sometimes, yes. Yeah. In in certain areas, there might only be one uh, one consumer. You know, uh, Fort St. John has one sawmill, so right. you know most of the the fiber from that timber supply area or any of the First Nations woodland licenses or woodlots would would naturally go to to the one consumer, which would be a Can for Fort St. John sawmill. Um, in other areas like Prince George, we've got five or six sawmills, so there is a lot of competition here. And the nice, the nice thing about having the the major, the primary consumers that buy logs, their their secure supply, so to speak, has been reduced. You know, right. The tenure that they manage has been reduced, and so as Rob says, you're forced to go to BC Timber Sales, which is the public auction program, or they go to woodlot owners, or they go to the First Nations that have uh, woodland tenures, community forests. They're all managing their forest sustainably and harvesting trees and selling logs to all those primary manufacturers. Right. So at the end of the day, there's, it, it creates some competition because the, the, tent, the, the major manufacturers don't have a, a guaranteed supply for all their wood. And it sets reasonable market values for the wood, the logs, based on what's going on in the market, which is how the system is supposed to work. And one of the major complaints the Americans have always had against our system but clearly it doesn't work like that. We have a system where people have to bid and buy logs from a variety of people to a variety of consumers. Now, now some of the people, I hear comments from people that, in, 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 that are not experts on it, but they're saying, well, you know, some of the people that have 75% of their volume under the long-term tenure, that they usually pay less than 
but they have to pay for the incremental volumes that they have to buy on the site. That uh, so there is always competition for getting more wood in in the marketplace. So that uh, you know, the, but indirectly kind of indicates that there may be still too much capacity, and and to mm -hmm. balance with supply and demand. Supply and demand will always come into balance. We've, we've, yeah. you know, we've had this discussion many times, and um, and I think what's happened is over t over the recent history where we've had spruce beetles, we've had pine beetles, you know, which you know killed sixty percent of the pine in the interior. Um, and, and that and as as the foresters have all uh, uh, systematically adjusted allowable harvest levels to make sure that you know yes we killed a bunch here we burned some there. We better reduce the level of harvest yeah. so that so that what's left is still sustainable. Yeah. When that harvest level comes down, that means less of a log supply and capacity should come with it. Yeah. So to your point, we still haven't got that balance there. And yes, there is competition for any logs that come onto the market yeah. from from woodlots or First Nations or any of the community forests. Yeah, the, the other areas that I hear from my friends in the industry is saying that BCTS originally started as a small business program, was about 20% of the annual allowable cut, and, and now is around six to eight million meters annually, maybe as high as 10 or 11, but they are only harvesting four or five, and there is at least 10 million meters of what they call undercut. And, and the complaints of the industry is a lot of times, why are they not delivering the undercut? <laughs> that's a good question. That's, that's, <laughs> we, the entire uh, industry. Well, that's why else wants to know Because I want to know. Everybody wants to know the answer. Yeah, I think when the intentions paper came out, and, and at the same time, that old growth deferral, uh, that really put... Uh, the brakes on BCTS as far as, you know, what are we going to do with respect to old growth deferrals? You know, they, they weren't, and they were, it was a temporary thing. Um, no, were you guys, both of you, were you not the authors of the? No, no, no. no but no. you did a document for Kofi that yeah. uh, in terms of, of what, identifying what the, what the, the potential impact might the, be. Yeah. The impact, and, and that's where the magic number came in and saying, Oh my God, what's going to happen? All of a sudden, a report came out that indicated that there would be as many as 16 mills shutting down and the whole industry and everybody around about, oh my God, yeah. what's happening? That, that's, what, that's what happened. You know, the, as I said before, the, the old growth deferrals, uh, as identified, if, if they stay permanently outside of the available wood log supply for the industry, takes about 7% of the supply away. Yeah. So in turn, 7% of the capacity of the province. I mean, this yeah. is a big province, this is a big industry. And that reflected four or five sawmills, primary consumers on the coast, and four or five in the interior. If you take out those sawmills, that reduces your chip supply, so there are probably gonna be an impact on one or two pulp mills. Sawdust and shavings go to pellet mills, so the probably going to be an impact on one or, one or two of those. And in fact, right here in Prince George, about the same time, was just, just after the old growth deferrals were announced, the largest pellet plant in British Columbia closed right here in town, citing yeah. lack of fiber. Correct. Right? So, so th that, that steady reduction that we've been seeing as the pine beetle uh, salvage efforts have come, uh, in combination with old growth deferrals and lack of wood from timber sales, they gave up and they closed the mill and I don't know offhand how many people they employed, but that was part of the impact that we saw when we did that analysis. And you can see in a number of places across the province, a number of mills are either operating on reduced shifting two or three days a week today. Even and today. And what, what reduced shifting means is a third of the capacity of that mill. So if they were had 300 people, 100 of them are gone yeah, because they were, might've been running three shifts, three down yeah. to two. Yeah. Uh, it's and we're still struggling with that today, hence their industry is saying, why are they not delivering the undercut, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. or why not add the undercut to BCTS so that we have even more fiber in the competitive bidding process yeah. that would yeah. help everybody. And, and uh, you know, so, uh, you know, so that's, that is one of the questions 
today that we have is uh, realizing that the annual allowable cut has gone down. But the question is, why not the undercut? And some people say it is indirectly related to the old growth deferral because there are so many areas that are affected by, and that's another question I'm asking uh, from you guys uh, that are so knowledgeable in the area is that stuff that I personally, and I've been in the industry for 60 years, don't fully understand. I believe also in preserving old growth and I imagine them these massive, beautiful trees, you know, going up in the sky that is so, and then cutting them all down and making two by fours out of it. I'm not saying that that's what would happen, but I can see that in some cases, but a lot of times the old growth, which included 2.6 million yeah. hectares, yeah. that includes trees that are small trees. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not fully understanding as to yeah. what the logic was behind the size or the, the, the volumes involved. Yeah, well, Aaron Gunn came out with not too long ago with a, a, a video along, you know, and I explored that, and, and you can see some but, of the. But it's the video for the benefit uh, of our uh, yes. Jim. It's, it's, uh, politics explained yeah. by Aaron Gunn. He looked at the the old growth. Where are we yeah. at on the old growth situation? But it shows exactly what you're talking about. You know, some of those old growth stands in the interior, and uh, and he walked through it, and, and half of the, the the trees were dead or or falling, and it was a. Um, uh, you know, a, a maze of uh, of deadfall throughout the thing, but it was an, an area that, you know, the experts had claimed this was old growth and we had to preserve it, and so forestry wasn't ha or, or logging wasn't happening in that area. So there's, you know, they're not all those big trees that you see on the coast. That well, when you do yeah. this, and that's what most coast. people think that's of, right? Think. Yeah. That's yeah. what exactly. they oppose, right? Uh, and then, the, but I sometimes feel is that the whole old growth deferral with all due respect, are so carried away by different stakeholders for different reasons that it included a lot of stuff that was then small wood that is normally harvested and, and was age-related, maybe 100, 150 years, and those numbers were thrown around. And all of a sudden, if you manage the forest on a TSA basis where the management in this region, they are so worried about that old growth all of a sudden may be all over the place that it has really somewhat paralyzed the sector in terms of what is, what isn't in. And, and that's where we're at today. The industry's kind of in limbo. There's, there's, one thing, there's one thing I think that most, again, most people don't understand is that when you look across the province, the forest is managed based on an ecosystem basis. You know, forests in Prince George don't look like forests in Kamloops, and Correct. they don't look like forests in the coast. Different moisture, different soil, they uh, different climate, different species. Different species. They they all they're all managed differently. Correct. And one of the things that I don't think the public really understands is that, you know, those deferrals were put in place for us to give us some time to make sure that that, that there's still old growth available. It's a temporary deferral. That was the intent. While we look at, okay, how much old growth do we really need? What I think most people don't understand is that you can't preserve a stand of old growth and assume it'll be there for the next thousand years. No. Especially, it simply isn't. It's especially in ecosystems in this neighborhood. You know, the trees, the, the, this is kind of a fireborne ecosystem where trees grow to 130, 140, 150 yeah. years yeah. of age. As you said, they start to fall down and eventually they'll burn and a new forest will come back. If nobody yeah. ever touched it, that's the process. Yeah. So, to, so to say, here's a patch of old growth, let's just preserve it forever. What you're, what you're saying is, is that we're just going to let all that die and, and hope that it doesn't burn and, and, and hope that it's not too close to town so we have fire in town. Whereas what we should be doing is saying, let's, let's, let's always make sure we have... 15% of the forest is old growth. And we're gonna log this piece today, but tomorrow that piece that's 110 years old, it will eventually grow into that status and it becomes not a static process, but a dynamic process. Yeah. That's how foresters think. Yeah. But I don't think that's how the policy makers that said, let's preserve old growth and, and, and not touch it again. In a sense, doing. it has become political. 
in my view, that political, not necessarily politicians from one side or the other, but that other stakeholders, uh, and with all this due respect to the environmentalists and, and other stakeholders that don't fully understand how it works, the lack of information. Uh, correct me if I'm, I, I think, uh, you know, the 75 percent, the, the amount of old growth is how much? 11? 11 million hectares. Hectares, 11, 75 percent of it is already preserved as old growth. Yeah. And then there are, the focus seems to always be on, you know, with all due respect to my friend Dick Jones, uh, his area mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, the, uh, on the yeah. island. Uh, a little know, bit yeah. that's not protected, but let's go after that next. Yeah, so. and I, yeah. you know, in, in the process also that has become a, a, a kind of created uncertainty at an industry that's already struggling and, and uh, you know, we seem to have drifted away to it becomes political and other interest groups and all of a sudden it doesn't make sense to anybody and now all of a sudden there's an industry that is already curtailing we have 10 million meters of undercut that should be harvested but isn't yeah. and, and so circling back on on that undercut um, and, and why bc timber sales has has such a significant amount of undercut when that low growth deferral came out it put a lot of uncertainty in respect to how are we going to manage this. Right. But in the background, even before that, the time it takes from when you identify a potential area to be harvested to when you have a cutting permit approved by government is anywhere from easily six months to typically about a year and sometimes a year and a half. Mm -hmm. and, and, that, and what is involved with that is you, you do a mapping exercise, then they, they do a reconnaissance. Then they'll they'll do you know boundaries. They'll do uh, uh, volume estimates. They identify you know riparian areas. They protect those. They have to flag those areas out. And say this is no harvest. They have to identify old growth or or potential heritage sites within that cut block. They have to identify steep slopes or or, or unstable ground. They have to identify what type of uh, soil exists in there now, so that they know what type of uh, trees to, uh, should be planted or should be, right. uh, you know, let go. So that that whole process. That's from, just the short list. That's the short list. Uh, there, <laughs> yeah. I know there was a, a um, I think there was an article in the truck loggers a month or so ago, just talking about that uh, and and the, the steps that are required to take it from a concept to actually harvesting. And, uh, and where you might have 100 hectares at the start uh, as a concept, by the time you've put in all of these considerations for, uh, for riparian reserves, for streams, for wildlife habitat, for uh, heritage and culturally significant sites, uh, for you know, even for uh, wildlife trees, uh, uh, if you happen to have a, a raptor Terrible. nesting or something like that, you're, yeah. if you're lucky, you're down to 50%. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and, whole, and so now you've got old growth. It says, well, you know, did that original patch that we've already identified uh, and we were going to harvest in it, now it, well, it, part of it falls into an old growth patch, uh, you know, identified by somebody in Vancouver who is purportedly a, an expert and, uh, and, they, and they did a mapping exercise at a high level and said, well, this is an old growth patch, you have to uh, defer it. So, the, so all of that kind of put, a, 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 you know, the brakes on the whole system. And so that's why there's a huge... Uh, I guess backlog of uh, of under undercut right at this point yeah. in time. In, in cumulative, all these issues, you know, directly and indirectly, put pressure on primary manufacturers yeah. that you know that in a lot of cases in British Columbia are, are public companies, yeah. but also private companies that their CEOs have difficulty explaining to their board of directors as to what they should be doing, yeah. and and it creates uncertainty and, and uh, capital doesn't like to uh, invest in uncertainty yeah. and hence they move to other places until it sorts itself out. And it's not, and it's not just the sawmills. The saw, I agree with you, the sawmill investors that are going, wait a minute, there's no wood, you're only running three yeah. days, we better hold up on those investments to improve our efficiency or improve our productivity. That stops almost immediately. Right. But you go down down the chain. Now you got the loggers. You know they invest just as much money in logging equipment and logging trucks. Yeah, they're not sure if they're going to be working, so they stop investing. 
Yeah. And you come down to the consultants, like you know the company we work at. Exactly. We've got all these people, and we we need to buy trucks and skidoos and trailers to go out. And so it's like, wait a minute, we're you know we have the a ripple goes we're, right we're through. Not, it goes right through the economy. It goes through the forest economy, and that's going to trickle down into the community economy as well. And we're seeing it today because and, of the uncertainty. And more and more so, even uncertainty that regardless of it all, we should not have, and it requires explanation in a lot of cases, that's why we are here, but also in terms of, of politicians that, that they're getting approached from all kinds of different directions by different interest groups and have, being able to sort it out and kind of standing back and saying, what really does that mean uh, on the ground? Like for every sawmill, you know, like even if sawmills go down, we have lost already about 35 of them, maybe another four or five to go, maybe potentially. Easily, for every yeah. four sawmills, and from, I'm not sure if that's the right formula, for every four sawmills of medium size, you have on pulp mill. So eventually, it will affect pulp mills. It did already, and we got them all over the province in different areas. Uh, you know, uh, and 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 the likely is still too much capacity. And I don't want to be a scaremonger, but at the same time, that's reality. Yeah. And then what follows that again is pellet plants. You know, the uh, uh, you know the pellet industry again using residuals. Like, uh, you know, uh, pulp mills mainly using chips as an input uh, or, or other uh, uh, residual timber that is not utilized for, uh, you know, uh, lumber are using it as an input and the same do pellet plants. And, and again, if we don't have the capacity that generates it, we lose those plants yeah. again. It just know. goes up and down. In the fire. We just we don't have to look very far to see a real-world example of that. I mentioned the pellet plant in Prince George, the pulp mill in Mackenzie. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and, and one of the sawmills in, uh, in Mackenzie closed uh, quite a while ago, and they, and they permanently closed it. So you see that ripple effect that it's happening all the time. And it's... A lot of, you know, when you go back to the intentions paper where we started the yeah, discussion, because yeah. we're all in this transition, Yeah. but the intentions paper is trying to outline where the government wants to see the industry go. And there's a lot of people, and it's been growing, you know, almost exponentially over our careers, where there's more and more people that have an interest in what should happen in the forest. Yeah. Because you know, it's there for us. Because it's a publicly owned resource. But if we go back to the 60s and 70s when we started, the forests were there to produce wood to build the economy. Yeah. You know, today the forests are there to produce wood to support the economy, but we also need to support tourism. We have to support water. We have to support climate change. And these are all competing interests around yeah. what we should do in the forest. So the intentions paper is trying to say, Let's go down a path of where we should we should we should probably have more old growth. We should have we definitely need more secondary manufacturing. We want more First Nations involved. All good intentions. Yeah. But getting that done on the ground, kind of difficult. And and and, and creating a lot of uncertainty in, in the in the process. In the process. Yeah. And yeah. that uncertainty then, you know, when the politicians say, Well, why are they investing in the US South? Well, there's uncertainty here. Uh, and, and in the or in and, Sweden. Yeah, and so you know you might have these sawmills you know shutting down, and you know the the their intention, which was to provide opportunity for you know in the form of First Nations woodland licenses or tenure to First Nations. Well, the tenure will be there, but there won't be a sawmill to purchase it because uh, they they've created this environment of uncertainty around old growth and uh, and who has control and and you know. Where's their, their fiber going to come from? And so you see, and today, if I look at it, and I'm fairly close to it because I'm the vice chair of Kofi, uh, and at the same time, I'm part of the value-added manufacturing. That means the lumber value-added manufacturing sector and that are negotiating this industry, and, and Kofi, to a certain extent, uh, is part of that uh, process to... Uh, you know, to find resolutions among 
the different stakeholders that are uh, primary manufacturers, uh, uh, lumber value-added manufacturers uh, uh, includes uh, uh, other stakeholders like uh, pulp mills, it in mm -hmm. includes uh, pellet manufacturers and other stakeholders and the pie is getting smaller and yeah. smaller and more difficult. And, and so that is one of the struggles now under the umbrella of the intentions paper and uh, and and a big part of that was just the, in the intentions paper is it didn't it does not define what value added is, yeah, and that's, and that's a big question. So everybody has their handout for okay, well if you're going to provide fiber for uh, value added, well what is value added? Is it a pulp mill? Is it paper is value added? But does it fit under the auspices of the whole intention? Uh, you know the pulp mills. How did they evolve here in Prince George, or or in the, anywhere in BC? It was because they had, at one point in time, security of fiber. They had pulpwood agreements. They had tenure, uh, which they eventually gave up in the coast. But uh, and there know, was a lot of wood chips. Yeah, exactly. Um, pellet facilities. They never really had tenure, but they had a, a, the government created an environment where you couldn't use beehive burners anymore. So there was this huge surplus of sawdust and shavings. Um, and, and, you know, how do you d dispose of it? So that was the opportunity for pellet facilities. But now as the mills have uh, curtailed or shut, there's not as much sawdust and shavings. The pellet facilities are in the same boat as a lot of others where it's there well, the, looking the, for wood. Yeah, and the other part about it, uh, Rob, was that uh, 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 the, the push on the pellet manufacturers came, started in early 2000, late 90s, here in particular uh, in this area. And, uh, you know, and then the, uh, the pine beetle came and it, it, it created a lot of fiber that was available because of the uplift mm -hmm. and annual allowable cut to deal with the pine beetle. And there were lots of residuals available then and all of a sudden as it gets down to the point where that volume is not available, there's more pressure on pellet producers. I'm part of negotiations with secondary manufacturers of lumber are saying we want to add more social and economic value, but we must have reasonable expectation of access to fiber. Uh, meaning lumber. On the yeah. same time, in the same negotiations, we have, uh, you know, the uh, uh, pulp uh, in paper manufacturers like uh, uh, Paper Excellence is making the argument, correctly so, of saying that, uh, you know, that they are value-added manufacturers too. And then saying, well, then, well, you can use residuals. They say, no, we want to have the higher quality logs if they become available to secondary manufacturers. We want part of that yeah. too because we want to use it for trading yeah. against, so those kind of things. And this, and, cr this creates that uncertainty that and, is stymieing the industry. And then the other one I, I always find is a good example is uh, I look at Gorman and West Bank, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, I admire that company and, and the founders of Gorman. Uh, you know, that started the company as a small mill that was making mainly boxes for fruit and all yeah, of those fine. and became a, a, the manufacturer of one-inch lumber in particular. Boards. Boards, you yeah. know, and, and one of the top mm. producers of boards and, and they say we are lumber, you know, and uh, other people <clears throat> making the arguments, including myself, is lumber remanufactures, logs and lumber man <clears throat> remanufactures. And Gorman says, no, we, although we are tenured, they claim, and they are, <coughs> but they have lost a lot of fiber. I think they had something like 1.2 or 1.3 million meters, and because of deferrals, and because of this, that, and the other things, all of a sudden, the fiber supply has gone down, and it affects their operation, but they are also value-added, matter of fact. So all this other interest is going on, and it's because of the pie is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So, so I think in the intentions paper, my recommendation would be that the government as they go through this process, define what they really mean by promoting secondary manufacturing. Right. What your company does is clearly secondarily manufacturing lumber, which is the final product from a primary. Correct. That's clear. Yeah. But as you said, the pulp company are saying, no, we're, we're adding value to those wood chips yeah. and making a pulp product. Yeah. You know, the pellet companies will say, no, we're adding value to sawdust, therefore. And shavings. And shavings. Um, you could go down to, uh, you know, over in Fort St. James, just uh, west of us, northwest of us here. Um, you know, there's a big uh, industrial electrical production plant there. They're adding f uh, um, 
value to bark that comes out of sawmills and um, logging residue that's left after you know the primary harvest. So, so when the government says in a in a blanket station uh, statement with good intentions, let's increase secondary manufacturing. As you said, everyone did this, and that created uncertainty, and and that's what we need to resolve so that for businesses like yours let's get more fiber into the hands of the people that want to buy lumber and, and then they have that as a currency or to invest in the forest industry yeah, all all of it together but they've got yeah. to, they got to clarify that because you know you know should we should we be putting the, the primary timber into the hands of an energy manufacturer when when they're three or four steps away from that primary manufacturer it's a question it creates certainty and the industry doesn't like uncertainty right. and we're in this this uh, you know, unfortunate situation today where the whole industry has slowed down while we try to figure it out yeah even despite the good intentions yeah and 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 mm. but it all started with the reduction of the annual allowable cut going down to and then add to that deferrals add to that uh, all, fires, those, all those other interests all the other interests so, so the other question, you know, that uh, and so that's where we are collectively today, and and uh, uh, you know the I I think primaries and secondaries all agree, I believe, as as an industry, and I'm close to it all, is that uh, you know the the one sector will not succeed without the other. So we are all in this together. If you make pellets, if you make pulp and paper, if you lumber secondary manufacture or a primary. But I always say in order to have viable, successful secondary manufacturing companies, you have to have a healthy primary sector. The one cannot survive with the other. Together, they are better if it is clear what the objectives are. And that's what's at risk right now is that primary sector is uh, is is operating under huge uncertainty, and so that's why you're not seeing reinvestment in in British Columbia. It's going into the U.S. In, where in, in anything, you know, yeah. and if they cannot be globally competitive, mm -hmm. and and the CEO makes the decision that in spite of that he will invest, and the he won't be in the job very long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. But that all being said, then you know the you know the I always find you know we are the most fortunate people in the world. I've been all over the world. You guys probably have been too, and uh, you know and and every time I think you know and look at the news, which is depressing most of the time, and and living in Canada, there is simply no better place in the world. And then add to that, if you're in British Columbia, and I fly along here a lot, and I always sit by the window, and I look outside the window, and I say, it's paradise. Mm -hmm. And this, this province in particular, and, and the interior, the, the, the amount of fiber that we have here, and the way it grows fiber, I had, uh, you know, I still remember, uh, you know, the, the Bowen Lakes, uh, uh, when there was the beetle kill there, we had a little sawmill that we put in there. That was 40 years ago in 1983, when I had my little sawmill there, cutting the residuals that nobody else wanted, you know, for my yeah. value-added plant. If I go there now, and you guys probably do this all the time, but if I go, I just cannot believe what happened there. The interesting part about that is, you know, that kind of, the picture that you draw, yeah, BC has a lot of fiber, uh, you know, throughout the province, but you, you get to, you know, the, the CBC or the BBC, you know, and they showed those pictures of the cut blocks and, the, oh my God, this is the last, uh, you know, old girl standing or the last log standing. And they paint a picture that is totally incorrect, you know, that, you know, we're harvesting, we've, uh, you know, without any uh, control or, or foresight into the future. And, uh, and, and you kind of wonder what's, why, what's their objective with that. E either it's ignorance on, on forest management in general, or it's sensationalizing the whole... A, a bit uh, of everything, I yeah. think, to paint the picture for some stakeholder group yeah. that sells either papers that they do or God only knows what, why. But what I find interesting, Rob, and both of you are experts in the field, you spend all your life in the industry, a lot of that in, in British Columbia, pretty well all of it in British Columbia, and, and you know, we are, 
you know, for every tree we cut, we cut, we not only plant three keys, mm-hmm. more mean more than that. More than that, more and, than three. Yeah, yeah. The, the amount of trees we're planting now, you know, the harvest levels have dropped. Uh, area harvested over the last 10 years has dropped significantly, but the amount of trees we're, harvest, we're replanting Planting. per hectare has almost doubled. Yeah. Um, and, and putting uh, more trees, trees on every hectare, and, and yeah. part of and I, you know for for my business where we grow about 22 million seedlings every year, that's good news because uh, you know. The, but why are they planting more trees? It's a function of well, we can't uh, or or the um, the public and First Nations says we don't want you to herbicide. Uh, so right. if you're not going to herbicide, that creates a little bit of risk about how many uh, you know what will the seedlings when you plant them will they survive? So they go with larger and uh, larger trees and and more. Um, and more of them per hectare. So, so the, the, the herbicides uh, somewhat uh, uh, delicate area that where the uh, the reason for herbicide is to suppress the broadleaf trees yeah, and yeah. to give room to grow, right? Yeah. You know. So, so the 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 other thing is that uh, you know they the, that we are dealing with the midterm right now because of. It will take time. Correct me if I'm wrong. That at the midterm to get back to where we where the annual allowable cut will start going from. If it is 40, mm-hmm. hypothetically speaking, then correct me if I'm wrong here. As we put more effort into the land base and 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 then do a certain amount, whatever that may be, of intensive forestry. To create to stimulate the growth, that how much effort would that be to do that? And then, if that happens, is the second part of my question: is that would then during the midterm gradually already the calculation improve in terms of annual albuca? It is not a question. It takes eighty years to grow, so or sixty years, seventy. Or it says it was sixty years, so it means uh, sixty years from now. It is uh, uh, in in twenty eighty. And it's a gradual process. Yeah. What, My question is: what, what's what's good about the way British Columbia manages forests, and and what tweaks me to this, you know, was your comment about, you know, you see these sensationalist stories of the cut blocks. All you right. see is the cut blocks on the news. Right. You see the environmentalists standing beside the big stumps, and you know, right. this is this is all bad. But we have something that's very positive in this province that ensures that over time, we don't cut too many trees down. And that's ingrained in law that the chief forest of the province is required every five to 10 years to reassess what level of harvest should we have? How many cubic meters should we be harvesting in each one of those forest management units, TSA, TFL, even woodlots. So when you have a natural disaster like the pine beetle or fires, and a, and a lot of the trees that were scheduled to be harvested through the midterm burn or die or or and then and what we did we we logged all the ones that were dead, right? The, the chief forester reduces the harvest level of what's left. And then we plant trees, right? But if we plant more trees, there's a good chance we're going to have more volume when they start to grow, and so they take that into account. So it's not just adjusting the harvest level down to account for natural disasters. The chief forester also concerns, are you doing intensive silviculture? Are you planting the trees immediately after you harvest or are you waiting till the next year? That one year can make a difference in the volume that you'll be able to harvest. And I think that that notion is lost on everybody that's ever reported on a story in the forest industry is my view, because you never hear about it. I mean, that's why it's important to have this discussion to say the allowable cut is always defined on a sustainable basis. Trees take, you know, 60 to 100 years to grow. Every five years we have to reassess. That's a pretty good window to keep saying, have we overcut? Have we undercut? Are we planting more? Have we fertilized? Let's take it all into account and readjust the level of what's left. And yeah. it ensures the British Columbia harvest level is always sustainable at any point in time. Yeah, and, and I think that's extremely important information. Is, is it, it's, it's not well understood. A lot of people say, well, we're cutting them down, we're not planting any trees. Well, that's not so. Not only is it not so, it's far beyond that. We, we do an absolutely unbelievable job in forest management 
in the province of British Columbia. In the 80s, the government was responsible for reforestation. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1987, uh, the, the, the uh, liabilities were transferred to the uh, to the uh, the forest companies. And that was a game changer. Well, yeah, but in the in the 80s, uh, on average, and and it's documented in a lot of the their timber supply analysis reports. Government would take anywhere from five to seven years to replant an area after it was uh, it was logged. Right now, you know, after we've caught up with all of the backlog over the 1990s as a result of, of man, uh, management by the government or mismanagement, now it's usually about six months to a year that we're we're replanting yeah. after harvesting. Wow. And so, you know, and so all of that information, as well as like Jim was saying, is now incorporated into those annual elbow cut sustainability calculations to ensure that, you know, what they're harvesting at any, you know, in any one year is, is you know, is sustainable for the future. And when they transferred that responsibility to regrow another crop, you know, and that's, and, and the companies, if they cut down a patch of timber, they're obligated by law to make sure that they grow another patch of timber in exactly the same place to the point where it's free from competition. The technical term is they're, they're responsible till it reaches free to grow status. Free to grow, yeah. So that's a risk to them. Yeah. Companies always act to reduce risk. How yeah. do they reduce risk? They plant it immediately. Yeah. They yeah. make sure that it's not overgrown by the weeds. Yeah. If they can't use a herbicide, they're just going to grow big, or plant bigger trees or yeah. plant more of them. Yeah. And that one step probably improved the growth of British Columbia's forest by five to ten percent. If yeah. you consider it used to be which five, is, which is huge. That's huge. Like five yeah. to ten percent on a sixty-five million meter harvest. Yeah. You know, we we just gained another six sawmills exactly. by that one action. Yeah. So it's those kinds of things that the chief forester always takes into account when they adjust it. And and I'll say it again, John, because I want to make sure our viewers understand that. The level of harvest in this province is always reassessed to ensure sustainability over time. Yeah. We are not over harvesting. No. We might cut a lot in a few years. Yeah. But then we're going to adjust and we're going to cut less than we should be for a few years. Yeah. It like comes into balance. What happened with the pine beetle. Exactly. There were uplifts because to deal with those in order to make sure that there's still economic value there because in the same but otherwise we don't yeah and so they, we uplifted we took advantage of the opportunity yeah. now the cuts come down yeah. it's always sustainable all the time now the other part about it is a lot of questions about it in in a general sense and even in my own and saying that we see examples of of excellent forest management in terms of how come that we cannot grow more volume per hectare than happens in other places like example Sweden. I say a good example of that is uh, a company here close by Dunkley Lumber that uh, you know initially got a, 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 a license. What kind of a license? They have a tree farm license. Tree farm license for about 80,000 cubic meters or so. Uh, I think it was about 260. No, the original, original, the original, okay. original yeah. one was down and then the it doubled. Yeah. And then they doubled that again yeah. and, and so but we mainly have in, in British Columbia, correct me if I'm wrong, at least in the interior, is where we have volume-based tenures versus area-based tenures. But that tells me is that if it is an area-based tenure, the company will put more effort in because as long as they are rewarded for the fruits of that investment. Yeah. Just for clarification, uh, area-based tenures, uh, which are you know forest management units, are a geographic boundary, and there's usually only one uh, licensee or one one license holder that is allowed to harvest in that area. Right. Like Dunkley. Like Dunkley. Like yeah. yeah. For for the vol uh, for these timber supply areas, they're typically referred to as volume-based tenures, and you can have anywhere from two to a dozen different, or more, uh, two dozen different uh, individuals or companies uh, who have uh, harvesting rights in that in that geographic area. And so they're right. kind of competing between themselves on okay, where are they gonna put their cutting permit. And, and a, lot, a lot of times it's collaborative, <laughs> they, they, they Adjudicate it uh, through through discussions, but uh, that's the difference between the area-based and the volume-based. But, but to your point, in the, in the Dunkley case, 
Um, if they invest in uh, intensive forest management, they fertilize, they space, yeah. uh, you know, plant more trees per yeah. hectare, as, as Rob noted, a lot of the people, a lot of the companies do. They know that if they get that uplift in the allowable cut, when the chief forester considers what they're doing, that means they get to cut more. Exactly. With the volume-based tenures, where, as Rob said, you've got you know a dozen people all have a have an apportionment in the area. If the cut, if somebody does intensive silviculture and the cut goes up, everybody gets a piece of it. Yeah. That's the way the system works, right? Yeah. So there's a reasonable argument to say if they were all area-based tenures, everybody would invest. Yeah. The downside to that is the environmental community tends to see area-based tenures as privatization of the forest, which it is not. Yeah. It's just a different forest management model. Yeah. And and what and again, what you don't hear in the media. One that actually encourages improved investment in the forest resource. Exactly. Seems to me like that's a pretty positive way to move the province forward in order to get more wood, which means more trees, which means more lumber, which means more for you and more for everybody else exactly. that wants to grow their business or start new businesses. Yeah. And that's one of the you know the better ideas, I guess, with respect to the intentions paper and the reallocation of of tenure to First Nations. Yeah. Initially, it's probably going to be, and, and it appears to be a, a largely a volume-based tenure, but the opportunity will be there then for the different First Nations bands to identify an area in their traditional territory, take that volume and say, okay, this is now our First Nations woodland license. And Which so is area-based. Area based. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, you know, and, and if they're prudent, they'll take the next step forward and say, well, are going to intensively manage it and and uh, consequently get a, a more volume than than what the government initially offered them. Yeah. So so there's we're achieving two goals there. We're we're increasing First Nations involvement in forest management, and there's the potential to move to more area-based management that should result in better growth. Right. Win-win. Win-win. So it's a good intention. Yeah. We just have to get there to, yeah. in order to to yeah. realize. But those which wins. is a process, right? First, yeah. it has to be a path. In the direction to go, that's the objective, and then uh, you know the, the the other one is uh, obviously uh, the the forever challenges that we have with uh, the market, in particular the United States and softwood lumber duties, and and I always say the Americans make the right argument for the wrong reason mm -hmm. because if if it were not that they claim that we are subsidized, then they have twenty other reasons that they would find to to make. Uh, you know the uh, Canadian operators uh, less competitive and uh, you know in the United States in all fairness though I must say that uh, you know the the the, the main timber uh, allocations or the annual allowable cut is probably held by about five six companies in the interior of the province and they probably control close to 70% of the timber plus or minus uh, bits, bits, uh, in, but a lot of them, and I like my friends, I deal with them and, and all the other things, but most of their operations are in the United States. Mm -hmm. So that makes it a delicate battle to fight because they are on both sides of the, the border. Yeah, you would think that that would help in the argument, but to date, it, but, but to date it really, really hasn't, right? No, in, the, in, yeah, their their investment in the in the U.S., but having you know their their um, mills in Canada precludes them from being part of the coalition. Yeah, right. So they don't get a, they don't get the voice that they probably should have, given the volume of timber that they produce in the United yeah. States. Yeah, in value added manufacturers that have no timber yeah. are playing high duties, so. You know, it, it, it discourages that process. Yeah. The other thing that I quickly wanted to talk about, because we can go on for the next two hours, you know, because, because so many, but, you know, a whole different topic that I have always found that, you know, we have this beautiful timber north of Prince George, you know, in the McKinsey TSA, Fort Nelson, and all the other things, and, and, Accessing that timber either directly or indirectly by having sawmills, pulp mills in those areas have not really been successful, neither in Fort Nelson or any of the other communities. And a lot of it has been not being globally competitive or timber 
being too costly to get it mm -hmm. to the yes. primary producer. It, it cost, cost drives everything, John. Yeah. I mean, in your business, you look after costs. Right. Right? Because you know what your products are worth. Right. Right? There's no difference in the lumber industry or the pulp industry. And, and the unfortunate reality is, is that when you go farther and farther away from the market, as you go north in British Columbia, costs for doing business in, in the winter is 30 below, 20 below here today. It's harder to do business at 20 below than it is farther south. Right. Um, we get snow. Um, you've got transportation, you know, right. ra rail transport, truck transport. So at the end of the day, the, the, the I believe one of the key reasons that uh, mills have not been successful in the north of the province, where to your point, there's lots of wood. Right. Is that beautiful the, the, wood? Is that the cost of it has been difficult, and and the government shares in that cost, and and they could probably help in that regard. But, but you know, when you look at the pulp mill in Mackenzie, it ran for, what, 30 or 40 years successfully, yeah. right? It ran out of wood. So right. it wasn't so much a cost issue, as a, but in places yeah, like yeah, Fort Nelson. Yeah, yeah, Fort Nelson, yeah, I, I just, uh, I agree with you for the, 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 the pulp mill in, in Mackenzie. Mackenzie shut down because they ran out of wood. But they, really, the, the government created an environment through their stumpage system, in my view, that resulted in a lot of the sawmills closing because it was they weren't providing you know a fair value or they were asking for more money uh, through stumpage than what the the logs at the top end of the lake were worth, and so if you don't have those sawmills operating in Mackenzie, there's no chip supply, and so the, the it's inevitable that that sawmill will or that pulp mill will will shut down. If it, it ran out of wood. If I look back in time, was there not at one point a water bedding pricing system? That meant that if you had benefit of lower cost, then you had to pay higher to kind of water bed the, the cost in terms yeah. of. You, I believe that the, our stumpage system is broken, mm -hmm. and 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 that does not stimulate good solid business, but it creates these ups and downs. And the other part that I believe is that government has to be much more of a stakeholder in terms of not only in terms of forest policy managing that part, sustainable uh, yield and all of that kind of stuff. But I believe that they should be adjusting the cost of getting the timber to market. They are part of a stakeholder yeah, in that absolutely. process. Absolutely. Should be separate from managing the forest. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I would go one step further. And my, my friends at CN won't like this much, but I think CN is, is, uh, is, is you know, a real, real problem to the industry, not in terms of getting product to market, it's lousy there too, but uh, you know, that the, the, the biggest mistake that we made in this province is I believe selling BC Rail, yeah. but that's political, so uh, I just wanted to throw that in there. It's political and, like everything else though, John. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but it, and, and it has cost us dearly. Yeah, and but, Fort Nelson is shut down because at this point in time, maybe but, because of the rail system. What I would do if I were in government, then I would say the rail line from Fort Nelson to Prince George being the center, we will take that back from the CN, the same as the rail line mm -hmm. going up to the Tacla, going into the major yeah, center, yeah. so that we can then bring the, th that, uh, you know, resource to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And they have to share in that cost of the marketplace. Yeah. Managing the forest, all of that is good, what they are doing, no question about it, but they have to become a stakeholder in getting the logs to market first, and then the market will decide what the value is of it. It's all about putting, having them put a business lens on those forest yeah. management decisions, right? I, and, I agree. And, and to Rob's point, they made a bad decision in McKenzie. Yeah. And the major primary producer left, and the secondary pulp manufacturer ran out of wood. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a one-to-one -one relationship. They did this, here's the, how the industry reacted. But so. if you now look north of Prince George, all those resources there are directly depending how do you get it to market. Mm -hmm. I say the rail line is critical to that. Yeah. CN is not going to invest in infrastructure to support that. So I think we should take that rail line back or buy it back from them. Uh, and, and then uh, also saying that the province of British Columbia has to recognize that to get those logs to market, 
is to get them into a central area and that is then part of the calculation yeah. as to mm -hmm. the market price will have that incorporated yeah. and then companies will buy it and that's how you stimulate uh, yeah. investment. And no, has, I agree. And it has to be reactive to the market. Or the system we have be. is just not, re not reactive enough. No. The government will tell us it is, but evidence suggests otherwise. So, so that all being said, you know, I still am very much of a believer in, you know, in, I love the province, I love Canada, and I love uh, the, the forest industry. Are we going in considering COVID, considering global supply chain, and all the other things? I still believe that is a great future in the forest industry in British Columbia. And, and another question that I want to ask also before, you know, the if we are doing what we are doing now in terms of, of replanting and managing the forest as well as we are doing, the likelihood is that if we look forward, a lifetime, you know, I was born in 1940, so, uh, you know, that, so about 40, 50 years from now, I think the annual albacate could well be 90 million cubic meters a year. We will be growing much more fiber in this area than we could be doing even today at the highest. I, I think the, in, I'll go first. I think the intentions paper, you know, if the, if the question is, are we going in the right direction and can we get to that point, that, that growing the, the forest and producing more volume? I think the underlying concepts in the intentions paper are valid, right? right. You know, continued sustainable forest management, uh, more secondary manufacturing, more First Nations involvement and, and support for the forest industry. Right. That's likely going to lead to uh, more investment because it'll reduce uncertainty. We're going in the right direction. Yeah. Unfortunately, un the unfortunate part is it's all going way too slow and it's created this uncertainty. But at the end of the day, the sawmills we have left are the best in the world. Yeah. The cost structure is what is hurting us. Yeah. Um, you know, First Nations involvement in the forest industry that shares the wealth amongst the, you know the, those communities, that's a that's a good thing. Yeah. We just we just have to move it along and get there. We're a year into the old growth deferral process, which was supposed to be a two-year process to revamp how we manage forests. We haven't even got agreement on what's been protected and what hasn't. So it's just painfully slow. And it's, and it's created this problem in the industry where mills are shut down and log supplies down and investment is stopped. Indirectly undercut. And, and yeah. there's undercut, which you know, may or may not you know, come on the market or be considered by the chief forester, but we're going in the right direction generally. If right. we have this interview in 10 years, we're gonna look back on the intentions paper and say, well, how much did they get right? They have to pick up the pace. Yeah, but they have to go quicker. Right? Yeah. So that, that's my view yeah. of what yeah. the future looks like for yeah. us. And, and then the other thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 no, just, but uh, your numbers were about right. Like when we look at the, you know, the collective uh, annual level cut for all these forest management units and you project them out, and you're right, we're in the midterm and, and that midterm is probably going to drop a little bit further than what, you know, than what we have today. Um, and, but it's out about probably about 2045, 2050 before you start to see that incremental increase, you know, because at least in the interior, It'll take that much time before we've we've harvested the you know the, the what we have right now for the midterm timber supply, and we start harvesting uh, stands that were planted in the in the 70s and 80s and 90s and that. And so it's it's that that time frame, and and once we start harvesting those ones, then you'll start to see an incremental increase. And it, will it hit 90? Well, it'll it all depends on how many more of these old growth deferrals and parks and that are going to be imposed upon the land base because that continued mentality of, well, you know, uh, that logging is bad is going to continue to shrink the whole uh, timber harvesting land base. And yeah, you might be, uh, uh, you know, theoretically you might hit 90, but what might be available, well, maybe it's 60, yeah. unless we get a, a, a clearer vision on what forest management is. And, and I agree with you, uh, Rob, but I disagree a little bit in terms of saying that industry 
and the associations, including Kofi, have not always been the best communicators. Oh. Mm -hmm. And they have not always been straight up where they could have been. And I would hope that that will change. That's why we are sitting here yeah. today, because we have a lot of people watching. And, and, and we, we have, you know, dig into a lot of areas that are not overly clear a lot of times. You know, so... Uh, and not, explaining that to the public is important, because the pub critical. public sentiment tends to steer government's actions. And the more yeah. we can help people understand what is ostensibly a complicated business, yeah. the better it's going to be for us all. And, and polls that have been taken is that where 80% of the people believe the forest industry is a good industry mm -hmm. and, drive, and the drive is behind the economy in, uh, in uh, British Columbia. Now, the other thing that I, before we add at the end, now, uh, you know, I've, <laughs> once you say 50 years from now, we'll see things change. And I, I was just kind of thinking, you know, I, I met Jim, the first time that I met him was 40 years ago mm -hmm. with Harry Gans that had <laughs> yeah. been interviewing me at IFS. Yeah. And 40 years is not really a long time, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so... Might be longer than our time now, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, but to, uh, and then the other part about it is that I was going to say is uh, you, you, you started your career with IFS and, uh, you know, when you got that phone call uh, yep. in, in Toronto when you finished off the school and say, oh, can you, and you had to call him again and you had to say, you said Prince what? Prince Rupert? No, Prince George. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and hence it became, you know, if I had only known the book that uh, uh, Jim wrote, and uh, it's, it's an amazing book, and he signed a copy for me, and uh, I, I urge everybody that uh, is interested in the industry, which means all of us in British Columbia and, by, uh, and in other places, uh, about uh, the career of uh, Jim and, and Rob uh, in an organization called Industrial Forest, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, all the things that they went through and, and being in the field and, and uh, in this amazing industry, what we call the forest industry in British Columbia, and IFS played a major, major role in that. And, and the other interesting part about it, because Jim spent half his life there, then he became a banker, he worked for another major company, and then uh, as of tomorrow, he's starting again with IFS. I'm going to. I started there and I'm ending there. So. He started there and he ended there. Being it. supervised by Rob now. <laughs> and, Jim and, used to say he hired me, but that's not quite true. And, and these guys together are amazing experts in what they have done in the field and are being recognized. You're too kind, John. Thank you very much. Thank I you, appreciate John. your time. Thank you.